Welcome to The Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I am Kate Gibson. And if I had jingle bells, I would be jingling them just so, you know, to go with the soundtrack. But I don't have any. Well, this is our last podcast for 2022. It's been a good year, Kate. And we have had such an embarrassment of riches in the authors to whom we have spoken. Oh, absolutely. I want to say thank you to all of the authors who were crazy enough. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Kind enough to come on our show and let us pick their brains <laughs> about their processes, their writing, their novels, It's their, their nonfiction works. It's just been amazing. Well, when we started out, we said to people, you know, we, we know you're not going to read every book we feature, but we will feature books that we like, A. And B, we hope that you will when you finish listening to the podcast, say, ah, I might take a look at that. Uh, and if we get a, a percentage to do that, we've been successful. But what has surprised me, Kate, I think, is that this has turned out to be a masterclass in writing, that we have learned so much about how really great novelists go about the work that they do, and same for nonfiction. Absolutely. There's no one way to make a podcast. We said it before, we'll say it again. No one way to make a podcast, no one way to write a book. Uh, it's incredible the different processes that people go through to 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 get to the words the end. Uh, I'm just <laughs> I'm just blown away by the way people torture themselves to get to those words. <laughs> I can just see somebody sitting down saying, "How the hell am I going to get to the end?" Uh, anyway, but some start with fully formed ideas about how the novel will progress. Some just start with a sentence. Some start with an idea. Some start with a character. Some start with a place. All different approaches, but all coming out to some wonderful books that we have been able to feature this year. So this is our last podcast of the year, and I want to tell you about the author that we're going to talk to today, Esmerella Santiago. I had never heard of her, and she was, if you may recall, if you've listened to some earlier episodes, Kate went to the Brooklyn Book Festival, and she was being honored as their principal writer there. And Kate said, Dad, you've got to read her books. And I said, what are the books? And what did you tell me? Well, I said that there's a trilogy of memoirs that she's written about her experiences, both in Puerto Rico, where she was born, and coming to the U.S. And we'll tell you a little bit about those. She has two novels also, one called America's Dream, which I think is a terrific title, the main character named America, and The Conquistadora, another terrific Terrific, terrific book. And I just want to say, this is quite a prestigious award she won at the Brooklyn Book Festival. It's called The Best of Brooklyn. And Mo Willems has won it. Colson Whitehead has won it. James McBride has won it. N.K. Jemison has won it. It's got quite a prestigious, prestigious background. But when Katie told me she's written a three-volume memoir tracing her life from birth up to the age of 29, I thought, <laughs> how presumptuous can you get? Who's... <laughs> Whose life deserves three books before they get to the age of 30? But Kate said, no, Dad, trust me, you want to read these. And so I did. And they are really wonderful and very distinct, each one. The three books are When I Was Puerto Rican. The second one is Almost a Woman. And the third is The Turkish Lover. And as I say, each one distinct. How so, Kate? Well, they really tell the story of a girl who's born in Puerto Rico. She's beyond poor. Her mother has her out of wedlock. She has lots and lots of brothers and sisters. The first book really is of her days in Puerto Rico as a very, very young child. And the book literally ends with, you know, leaving Puerto Rico. And then the second book, Almost a Woman, picks up when she arrives in New York. And she's sort of living in this apartment with all of her brothers and sisters and her mother, who's very powerful, but flawed. And Esmeralda gets an opportunity 
almost, I mean, it feels almost strange, but she gets an amazing opportunity to go to New York City's Performing Arts High School. And so she has to find her way as a Puerto Rican, an actress in the house where they're going, this is something you can do for a living. I mean, she's wandering around this crowded apartment practicing her vowels. And then the third is really about the relationship. She meets a guy and she uses him as the escape to get out of her mother's house. And the third book is really her coming into her own. She's involved in this relationship. The man's very controlling. But then somewhere along the line, Esmeralda starts to realize she's really smart. So smart. So smart. She gets to this country with no expectations really than a life of poverty in Puerto Rico. So that's a great story of immigration by itself and a typical story. So many Puerto Ricans coming to the continental 48 states. And then the second book is getting into the performing arts high school and she barely speaks English. (laughs) And yet here she is acting with all these incredible kids. And then as Kate says in the third book, she's got this controlling lover, but she figures out I'm pretty smart. So what do you do when you're pretty smart? You apply to Harvard and you graduate magna cum laude. (laughs) which she does. It's an amazing, amazing story that she has. And now she writes novels and she's been through a really unusual experience. Stick around to hear about that. We had a wonderful conversation with Esmerella Santiago, a reader that I didn't know about, Katie told me about, and I'm so glad I've read. Here's our conversation. Esmeralda Santiago, author of a three-volume memoir of her youth growing up in New York, taking us through her college years. It is a pleasure to have you with us in the bookcase, Esmeralda. And I want to start by asking you what it was that made you think these early years of my life, when not a whole lot has happened to most people, what made you think these early years in your life were worthy of a memoir and why it would be important? Thank you. Thank you for inviting me today, by the way. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you about this effort because I also need to give a lot of credit to the person whose idea it was, and it wasn't me, (laughs) to write about my life. It was by Merloyd Lawrence, who was a publisher in Boston, who saw a series of essays that I had written about my experiences as a young girl in Puerto Rico, and they had been published just locally in Boston. And she reached out and said, I really like your essays, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in writing a memoir. And I said, I'm too young for that. (laughs) I I haven't lived long enough. Uh, At that time, I was just about 40. I just turned 40. It was a, a real surprise that anyone thought my history was of interest to them. I had been publishing these essays really as a way to keep track of my memories because I was a new mom and um, it occurred to me my children might like to know at some point what it was like for me as opposed to their lives in suburban Boston. It took me a while to think about it and then decide to try it. And I did. I did my my first draft was almost 700 pages long. (laughs) (laughs) No, was the first draft all three novels combined? I mean, did you just say, I'm going to write it from start to finish? Or how did that work? Yes. Well, I I really, I had never written anything quite so long. And I didn't know what I was doing, really. You know, I basically said, well, I'm just going to write everything that happened to me until 
this morning, you know? <laughs> and so, so I, um, so that's what I did because I wasn't sure that I had enough material, frankly. I thought, I mean, my question and one of the concerns that people like me always have is, does anybody really care about us and about my life? My life is, is my life, but does anybody else see any value in it? And uh, of course, when you come from communities like mine, we're pr it's proved every day that really very few people care. So that was my first question. And then the next question is, I just write everything and see if that's why, that's why they have editors, basically. <laughs> I just said, she can just tell me, is there anything here? And while she was reading that very long draft, I reread it. And by the time she got back to me, I said, I really think this is way too much. <laughs> I really think this should end at around the time when I go to the uh, interview for Performing Arts High School. And she agreed. <laughs> and so that's how that process began. I never really set out to write a memoir, let alone three. And I get really weekly, two or three times a week, somebody asking me, what happened after you left the Turk? <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently there's interest that I didn't know there was. Well, what you describe is exactly the way I approached this. Katie called and said, you really need to read these books. And I have three of them lined up, starting with When I Was Puerto Rican. And I thought, this is so presumptuous for somebody to write a memoir, basically a three-book memoir, that covers the age from four to 20, what, 22, 23? 29. 29. 28, okay. yeah. And yet, as I went through it, I really began to think, A, this is beautifully written, and B, I came away with a new experience of the Puerto Rican experience of what it was like to grow up in Puerto Rico in a big family that was expanding all the time. Yes. Then to make the transition to coming to New York with a big family and no prospects and money, and what that experience must be like for so many thousands of people. And then your higher education, it all made sense. You made it make sense to me that it wasn't presumptuous, that it was really a story here of somebody who came to America and began to uh, go through the American experience. So I'm curious, let me take you through the books. Starting in Puerto Rico, as you grew up, you had no thoughts of coming to the United States. You thought, what was your thinking life was going to be like? I pretty much thought I was going to be like the women around us in Barrio Macum, in Tua Baja. You know, they were campesinas, jibaras, and that's who I knew, and I loved them. I found them incredibly generous and kind, and they were all mothers to the whole community in the place that we lived in, in this very rather remote barrio at that time. Right now, you can just whiz past it from, you know, from San Juan to another town. But it was really at the time rather remote. And, um, and so I thought that if I thought about my future, which most children don't, but if I thought about it, I thought I would be like one of those women and I would probably live in that place that I loved being in. And I would be doing pretty much the same thing that they were doing because they were training me to do those kinds of things. So it was not until maybe about just days before my mother announced that we're leaving Puerto Rico and we're going to move to the United States. And uh, at first I was 
why? <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't want to go <laughs> and stayed in that I don't want to be here once I arrived in New York for a very long time, even though I kept trying to do all the right things that I needed to do as the eldest of a very large family with a single mother who was very ambitious and had high aspirations for her children. It was this kind of evolution, as I look at it, I think the shock was that I was no longer there in that place that was familiar, where I felt safe, where I knew everyone. And then coming to this environment to where the climate was different, the language was different. Uh, I'm a rural girl. All of a sudden, I'm in the city. There were very few trees compared to where I grew up. I remember feeling like I was in a labyrinth because everything, all the edges were so sharp. And when you live in a natural environment, everything is sensuous and curvy. And and so all those things I was aware of, or I was making note of, without realizing that someday I would be writing about it. I think I was not the kid who said, I'm, someday I'm going to write about this. It didn't really happen until I started doing it. Well, and I want to ask you a little bit about your process, because your memory and your recall is so vivid that it almost reads like, Dear Diary, today we... There's a conversationality and there is a vividness to your memory. So what was your process like that you were able to sort of recall those very specific details and then sharing them with your reader? Or did you make some of them up? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I have to, the thing is that being the eldest of 11 children, there are a lot of witnesses to what happened. (laughs) So I knew that if I made it up, they would definitely call on me. But I also have happened to be one of these terrifying people who has a good memory. And so I remember things that people would rather I forget. And I think that that was the case. I remember saying to Merloyd when she first gave me this opportunity to write a book about my life. I said, but Merloyd, I really, I I don't really remember very much about that day and uh, those days, but I think it was mostly um, because I had not been psychotherapized. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, I didn't know about the idea that you block certain things in your life in order to continue to function in a way that's comfortable for you. So uh, I remember saying to her, I I really, I don't remember anything. I think it's going to be the shortest book that you've ever read at, you know, read in, in. And so she said, well, why don't you just start with the first thing you remember, whatever it is, and without judgment, just whatever it is. So it was a process of learning about myself or to recovering things that I had set aside in order to function in this environment and in this culture. And I think it was it was cathartic in many ways. I was able to get rid of something that I did not know so much of it had been a part of my life. And that is shame. When you're poor, when you're a person who has very little, we are blamed for being poor. (laughs) And I know right now the word is we're supposed to be impoverished. Yes, we are impoverished, but we were poor. And I still feel that that is a much more exact word because when you're poor, it's not just that 
you're not getting enough food or you're not getting enough heat in the winter or you don't have a token to get in the subway at the time. Now I know they do a little cards, but at that time there were tokens. It's not just about the things that you don't have, but there's no hope for getting those things. And, you know, Charlie, when you said earlier, it, it helped you understand the, the immigrant experience. And I think this is one of the things for those of us who come from other countries to the United States, we are riding on hope. And the poorer you are, the more hope you need and the more it gets pricked at. <laughs> it's like a little slow balloon or something, you know. And so it requires a development of character that I really feel right now as an adult, I understood I had to become a different person in order to fulfill my mother's aspirations, my own ambitions, and my own desire, which the very first few years in the United States was, I want to go back <laughs> to Puerto Rico. <laughs> but you didn't. You were, you were poor. But the family was striving. You were getting menial jobs, saving what you could. And then all of a sudden, somebody picked you out and said, you should try out for the School of Performing Arts, which is a tremendously prestigious school here in New York, where there are the best of dancers, the best of musicians, and the best of actors. You, however, couldn't dance, didn't play an instrument, <laughs> and basically spoke in broken English. So how in the world did you get in to this incredible school? Yeah, I have to say, reading your audition scene as a reader I mean, I, my palms were sweating. I mean, my palms were sweating for you. I mean, you had gone through the rehearsal process, the preparation process, and then you walk in the room with those unsympathetic faces, and my palms were sweating for you. <laughs> On paper, there's no way you should have been accepted. Yes. I, you know, chutzpah, that is all <laughs> it is. I was one of the things that I realized in the process, because I asked myself the same questions, Charlie, I, in the process of writing it. How did this even happen? You know, uh, I had not been in the United States more than a year and a half when I did that audition. So the fact that this teacher <laughs> decided that I was going to be, you know, an actress for somebody who could barely speak English, it was his amazing ability to see something that I did not see in myself for many, many years. And so I am so very grateful to those kinds of teachers who saw these things I could not see in myself. The older you are and the more you appreciate those kinds of opportunities, the more you realize that it takes that part of that success does come from you. Because of course I gave it all to them, <laughs> but some of it does come from you. And I think in the case of that audition, the idea of letting him down, that teacher who has spent so much time, so much effort, so much encouragement, that I could not live with myself. I, I would have dropped out of high school or do, actually <laughs> eighth grade at the time. <laughs> I would have dropped out of school rather than disappoint this all, all this effort that went in, including my mother taking a day off from work buying a little outfit for me, all those things. I felt that 
that weight. And I knew that it was not just about me. I was just surrounded by many people who are in this room with me. And I have to do the best for them. And so, yeah. And actually, Charlie, I was a terrible actress. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about the fact that you were sort of amazed when you got into that school for performing arts. You went there with all those talented people trying to figure out who am I and where's my talent? What's my talent? But you talk about that shame. Was there a period of time? Was there a moment, Esmeralda, when you shed that shame and you realized, I'm really smart? I think, and I write a little bit about that in The Turkish Lover, when I'm in the stage, I'm in my early to mid-20s, living with a man who is very controlling, and I'm, I'm having... I'm like a horse before they open the gates, you know. I felt that. I felt like I really want to go faster than this person, and that person is not allowing me to go through this gate. He he controls the gate. And there, at that time, at the place where I was working, I met the most extraordinary woman. Her name is Marie Scully, who I still know. And Marie Scully just let me talk to her. Nobody. Ever, including my mother, <laughs> asked me things about me and my aspirations and, my, and what I wanted to do and, and what, works, what was going on. And Marie Scully spent hours listening to me. And in the process of telling her what I was feeling and feeling very, very safe with her, when I did leave this Ulvi Dawn, uh, it was her house that I went to. So there was this connection that she really was, she treated me very motherly. And I think at that stage, it's when I realized I have to let go of a lot of stuff (laughs) (laughs) that is not working for me. Numero uno, the Turk. I think that that was, it was during that period. When I'm standing at Harvard Yard with Ulvi and having this epiphany, I belong here. This place belongs to me. I had never owned anything, really, maybe my clothes. But all of a sudden, I just had that moment where I said, this place belongs to me and I belong here. And the next day I started applying. So it's all this combination of being ready, having a sense that I'm ready being able to express it, and then having somebody agree with me. (laughs) Somebody who couldn't really do very much for it, but could at least make me feel like I could do this. And that's where I learned. That's where I got brave. That's amazing to me that you you could go through this highly prestigious school for performing arts, that you could get into Harvard, that you could be there. And it wasn't until then that you thought, I deserve this. I'm up to this. This is where I belong. That's amazing to me that you could go that long with that much success, but it wasn't until until you dumped the guy uh, <laughs> that you that it really came to you that this is this is an extraordinary life I'm leading. I'm really smart, and I deserve this. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I didn't have a sense of deserving it so much as. I am smart and I work hard. I knew that. I'm a hard worker 
and I'm thorough, <laughs> and I'm organized, and I'm coordinated, and I'm concentrated. All these things that I learned at performing arts, by the way, how to be focused, how to go forward when you really wanted to run in the other direction, all those things when you're being taught to be a performer, all those things really, really helped me so much during that period after I graduated from high school and was still kind of floundering around a little bit. So a lot of those skills were very, very helpful. And I think it wasn't, you know, what is it? Um, make it, make it as, no, as, until you make it. No, like, Fake it until you make it? Fake it until you make <laughs> it. Right? I didn't even have a sense of that at all. I mean, I knew that I had gone so far. That I knew because I looked around my circle of friends and acquaintances and even family members. And I said, none of them have gone this far as I have with very, very little <laughs> resources. And so that's, I think at that stage, when you recognize your own worth, everything becomes clearer for you. And I know that for some people, they never get that opportunity. And I'm very fortunate that I have always run into people who saw things in me that I didn't quite see, but they helped me to look in and find that person. The teacher, my first teacher here, the teacher who decided I was going to be at performing arts, Marie Scully, some of the friends I've made along the way, they have all been mirrors for me because they saw things I couldn't see until they told me they were seeing it. It requires a lot of courage to do that, to be that open, and you get hurt, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I've never been afraid of that, of being hurt. And I think that's part of the price you pay, right? But definitely courage, realizing I was really brave. I am courageous. I have a lot of heart. Once I felt that, I said, I can do anything. Doesn't matter what anyone says. Well, and speaking of trying anything, you're unique to the bookcase somewhat in the sense that you are not only a very accomplished memoirist, but you've also written fiction, America's Dream, Conquistadora. How is the process different for you when you approach fiction? Well, it's really <laughs> because I am part of this enormous family Memoir is a little like, it's. I'm not walking on eggshells because I feel basically it's my life and my story and these eyes that are looking at these experiences. So I've always felt this sense, like I don't need to apologize for any of that, but I do have to be truthful to the experience so that those people can back me up. Because I know that as a memoir writer, this is the first question that people want to know. Is that really true? Did you make it up? Well, you know, uh, I made up very, very, very little in those memoirs. When I get to fiction, I have this freedom to make up anything I want. <laughs> Esmeralda, I want to ask you specifically about writing Conquistadora. There was something very specific and life-changing that happened to you as you were finishing that book. Tell us about that. I was to maybe a week and a half away from my deadline of delivering Conquistadora to my editor, and I had a stroke. And um, the stroke was devastating for a writer because what it did was it hit the, all the areas that a writer needs. I could not comprehend what I read. I could not 
understand anything I wrote myself. I could write a letter, but I didn't know whether what I wrote made any sense to the recipient. I could not create anything because I couldn't read it back. And I remember lying in a hospital bed going, oh my God, I have not read War and Peace yet. (laughs) I can't die yet. (laughs) That was really one of my thoughts. so that was one of my thoughts was, and then the second thought was, wait a second, I would look at the newspaper or something. I go, this is familiar to me. When I came to the United States, that alphabet looks exactly like the one in Spanish without all the accents. And I learned how to read that language and understand it and now to speak it. of my day. So this is not as devastating as it might seem. So I began the process of teaching myself how to read and write again. And I did it the way I learned myself, how I taught myself English, which was to get children's books with alphabets and little simple Mm. rhymes and things like that. And that's how I did it. And I remember I used to walk around with a copy of Bleak House, because I had just started reading Bleak House when I had the stroke. And so I said, well, when I can read the first four or five pages, I know that I'm okay, right? So I just worked myself through this. It was really not easy. And I did not have therapists or anything. I just did it on my own. And then I remember being one day having lunch by myself and opening this little document that I carried around. And I read the whole first chapter of Bleak House. And I knew it, all the jarndices and all those people. I'm going, oh, my God. So then I finished Conquistador. I went back to my own manuscript because then I knew I could understand it and was able to deliver it maybe three years after I had intended to deliver it. Well, Esmeralda Santiago, it is one of the great breaks that can occur that you would come to the United States and find the opportunities you did not living the life that you had seen ahead of you in the small town in Puerto Rico. It's a great story that you tell, and it's a pleasure to read it. It's a pleasure to have you in the bookcase, and I thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so very much for inviting me to meet with you, and uh, thank you for reading my books. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
Rapid-fire questions for Esmeralda Santiago. Most influential book in your life? Uh, This is an easy one, and it always shocks everyone. It is The Iliad. I read The Iliad at least once a year uh, when I get... Why? Why? It is full of humanity. It is full of everything that we feel, experience, sense is in those poems. And I am constantly surprised. I have read every translation that I've been able to, because I do not speak Greek, but you never know, I may get to it. (laughs) It always inspires me. And it always makes me feel proud to be a writer, even though Homer, whoever she might have been, might have just been a speaker rather than a writer. Author you will read no matter what they wrote. Oh, wow. That is an author. Right now, Olga Tokarczuk. Yeah. (laughs) I am just obsessed with her work. Yeah. Obsessed with her writing. And right now I'm in the books of Jacob. Fantastic. If I weren't an author, I would be... An opera singer. Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Can you give me a a short aria? (laughs) Oh, I I would not inflict that upon you. (laughs) (laughs) You ended up doing what you were supposed to be doing, huh? How about favorite book about Puerto Rico? About Puerto Rico? Well, I think the writings of Pedro Albizu Campos are really, really important for Puerto Ricans and for United States Americans to know because in his writings, he makes a case for who we are and what our struggle is being the last colony in this hemisphere. So I think Pedro Albizu Campos, I don't even know if all his work has been translated into English. I do hope that it is. I read it in Spanish. And again, it is inspiring for me and it helps me to understand more about myself. And finally, in five words, just five words, Esmeralda, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Well, I would like to be conscious, meaning not get one of these illnesses where you forget everything. Uh, I would like to be continue to be strong physically. I want to continue to be open and curious. I'd like to be continue to be brave. Is that five, five, six? I think I might have given you eight. That's all right. That's, <laughs> That's all right. Five. Don't worry about it. Thanks for being with us. That was lovely. Thank you Treat so much. Treat to meet you. It is. Thank you all. I can't wait to read the new one. I can't wait to read Las Madres. It's such a pleasure. So, as I say, a very extraordinary woman, Esmerella Santiago, with a very readable three-volume memoir that takes her through the age of 29. But so amazing, Kate, that she could come to this country not speaking a word of English, expecting a life of poverty, starting in poverty in New York, scrambling for jobs, her mother scrambling for jobs. She gets into this performing arts high school, and then she winds up at Harvard. Amazing. And what started out as a, just a really important story to me about immigration wound up being an important story about an extraordinary human being. One of the things I love most about her books is they are so conversational. It's just like she's sitting down and she wants to say, Dear Diary, this is what happened to me today. And yet somehow they are beautiful and they are vivid. Her memory is incredible. And writing in her second language. Yes, and writing in her second language. And recalling memories that, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed I remember what I had for breakfast this morning. As a matter of fact, by the way, I, I don't. So, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm really impressed with her. And I felt 
one of the things I love most about this show, because I, I have to say, I was a little arrogant when we started this podcast, and I thought to myself, well, we know good writers. We know good writers. We, we know. We know. We've read a lot. We know good writers. And when somebody said, as de Santiago is winning this big award this year, and I said, who? And then I started doing some research, and I realized not only is she a huge deal, but she was one of the founders of the New York literature movement, Poets Cafe. I'm, I'm so embarrassed to say I didn't know her. She's an extremely important writer. And so I'm really excited that this show still teaches me things and introduces me to new writers that are revelations. And to me, Esmeralda, Santiago should not have been a revelation, but was. And so amazing that she overcame that stroke, that she still writes novels, that she, um, as, as she said, people keep asking me after they read the memoirs, what have you done since? <laughs> like, like you're supposed to top that. But she is writing novels. She started this movement of writers, and she's really amazing. Anyway, I think she's a wonderful writer to finish the year with. We want to thank you, all of you who have listened to this podcast during the past year since we started in May with Oprah. And as I say, I've talked to so many terrific writers. We're going to take next week off. We're going to enjoy Christmas. So this is our last uh, podcast of the year. And we're going to start next year with a bang. Uh, we're going to talk to David Sedaris, who is one of the most amusing, wonderful writers, I think. His essays are each one of them magic, and we will talk to him. Um, but I do want to emphasize, we hope everybody has a very blessed holiday, that people have time to spend with their loved ones. This is such a special time of year and time of renewal of hope um, and of looking forward to what I hope, what I hope will be a great year for this country. It's been a really strange few years and I hope we're coming out of the other side of it. This Christmas feels hopeful. So I, I have great hope and I wish you and yours uh, a Merry Christmas. I'm really excited that there, there are folks that are listening that aren't my mother and my husband. I thought, I thought that was going to be it. I thought every day we were going to sit around as a foursome and listen to the podcast. So the fact that there's more people than that is amazing to me. And um, this is my dream job. So thank you guys for, for, for helping me keep it. And if you would like to give us a present, go on wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a review. Or if you have some suggestions, we really do want suggestions. We need those suggestions because because we want to get sponsors. Uh, we, we, we need somebody to be underwriting this thing. We can't do this for, you know, just for our own amusement. But we do thank you if you review the podcast and give us some suggestions. We also should thank all the independent booksellers who joined us during the year. I hope they're all having very prosperous Christmases. And we do urge you uh, to support your local bookstore. So again, happy holidays to everybody. And we're going to go off the air with a coda. I think a nice way to end the year from Esmerella Santiago. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I wish all of you who are listening the courage to look beyond uh, your mirror and to look at other people with the same love, attention, and concern as you do your own children. <laughs>